My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I am glad you are here or have tuned in. Uh, Whether in a pew or on your couch, pull out your Bibles, turn to Psalm 79 and put those on your laps. I want you to know this book. I want you to know it well, and that will help if you have your own and you put it on your lap. If you were in the country of Israel and staying in Jerusalem and happened to be there on a Friday night at the beginning of Shabbat or the Sabbath, you could walk down to the Western Wall. I've done this. It is a large area facing an ancient wall. In fact, one of the remaining pieces of construction of what was known as the Temple Mount. And on a Friday night, if you were to go there, you would hear prayers and you would hear readings and you would see dancing and you would hear songs and singing, songs of Scripture. And one of the things you may hear in the Hebrew tongue is the singing and reading of Psalm 79. It is sung at the Western Wall because it is a prayer and response to seeing the attack on and destruction of the temple and all the bloody devastation surrounding that historical event. That prayer is still sung in the rubble, as it were. The year was 587 B.C., and the Babylonians came rushing into Israel in Jerusalem, killing and rampaging and going all the way to the Temple Mount and the temple and destroying it and leaving bodies in their wake. This is tragedy. War and death brought to a people's doorstep to such a degree that it made it all the way to the front step of where one would commune with Yahweh, the God of Israel. This psalm, still sung today, was written and sung then as a response to a horrible tragedy. And when that tragedy was experienced, this song gave the singers the words to sing and recite that allowed their cry and frustration and sorrows and confessions to go to the proper listener, God himself. This morning, we're going to walk through this prayer, and my hope For you is that when you experience tragedy or despair, pain or suffering, your reflex will be the reflex of this psalm. This will be helpful for you. Let the reflex to tragedy and despair be raw prayer. This is the posture you need when you experience difficulty or tragedy or suffering or despair. These are the handholds to climb the proper direction. We're going to walk through five different sections that form the outline of the song, and one by one we'll see how this mold helps in our prayers. The first one is acknowledging suffering, and I'm going to start with one through four. I'm going to read that again. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servant to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. This is, in fact, horrible. True tragedy. This is not hyperbolic. He's not trying to make this sound worse than it is. This is not being dramatic. 
there is real blood on the ground. This is trying to respond to the reality of what's going on. That's the kind of prayer this is. The psalmist says, you see the nations, the neighboring nations came into Jerusalem and decimated it. And the temple is defiled. You see, in order to get to the temple to defile it, you have to cross a river into the land of Israel. That's a natural defense. You have to cross a river and go by multiple cities before you get to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a fortified city with a wall and an army. And you have to get through the wall and the army. Then you have to climb a mountain to get to the top of the temple mount where the temple was located. If the army has gone that far, there is destruction in their wake. Ruins all around and the psalmist starts frankly with God. This is your inheritance. This all belongs to you. This land was your land you gave us. You said we would be your people and you would be our God. This is the relationship that we had. This temple is where we met together. Where we ate together. Where we communed together and it's all gone. The bodies are everywhere. They left death in their wake and the birds are rummaging. The beasts are wandering about inspecting the dead. He says blood has poured out like water. The volume is immense and it is all over the city. Indiscriminate death and destruction, and there was no one to bury them. That speaks to the extent of the killing. There was not enough survivors to bury the dead that remained. It's almost as if you can see the writer sitting in the dirt amidst the rubble, crying out to God, and everywhere he looks, he sees the evidence that tragedy has struck here. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. And the reputation of Israel and its crown jewel city is but a taunt to our neighbors. The mention of Israel would be used for mockery or derision now. Ah, Israel, yeah, how did that go? As though they are but of a joke. And throughout this beginning, it is obvious that the tragedy is being acknowledged and the suffering is being described. The psalmist doesn't hold back. He doesn't come to God with flowery language in order to slide past some supposed defenses. He says, oh God, there is blood in the streets. This is how it is. There is not enough strength remaining to bury the bodies. They came in here and ravaged us all the way to the temple. Friends, God can handle this kind of talk. He can handle frank talk, frank discussion. And secondly, God is the person to talk to. This is the right impulse when tragedy strikes, when despair is at your doorstep, when you sit there amidst the rubble devoid of action or ability. This is the proper reflex. Is it your re reflex? 
when you are sitting in the dirt, do you talk to God? Do you run to Him and speak to Him frankly? I don't think it would be wise to venture to assume that you have experienced this magnitude of suffering, but if this is the right posture, the right prayer for a tragedy of this magnitude, then it is the right prayer and the right posture for you. I find my natural reflex may be just to go in the corner and stew about something. Or maybe I talk to a friend and complain about my circumstances. That may be my natural response, but the best response, the most helpful reflexes are often learned and not natural. This will be good for you. Talk to God first. May your reflex to tragedy be talking with Him. With all the frankness of the situation, you don't need to dumb it down. You don't need to soften it up. We can talk to God. We should talk to God. This is your handhold. This is a mold for you. When the unthinkable comes, talk to Yahweh. And ask questions of God. That is how the psalmist continues. First his frank talk and then he asks questions. This is five through seven. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your, will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. He says, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Do you feel you have permission to ask those kind of questions? You can. And these are not simply the questions of confusion in the midst of meaningless suffering. We have seen that type of response before. If you remember some of the Psalms we've done already, you, will, you remember phrases like, how long will you forget me? Or turn your face from me. God is willing to hear your questions, and those are often the questions we have. But, so yes, run to God in the middle of suffering, but these questions, these are different these questions betray a knowledge the singer has in the midst of this tragedy. He says, will your jealousy burn like fire? God is rightly called a jealous God in Scripture. Because He is the Creator God, He has created everything and everyone, and He is a glorious God deserving of worship and honor from the things that He has created. And if it is given, if that worship is given to someone else, that is a treacherous thing. You see, we have a negative connotation for the word jealousy. Even as I say it, you're probably, ah, je jealous, really, we're using the word jealous? Because we picture jealousy in the midst of the broken human heart. When one looks at another and desires what he has, whether possessions or skills or relationships, one desires what is not his or hers. Thus, jealousy is a vice in the heart of a human. But in the heart of the holy, just, and good God, jealousy burns for what is rightly his. Have you stolen worship from God and given it to someone else? Have you bent the knee for something other than God? Have you attributed weight and glory and honor to something other than God? 
This is warned about and warned against at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. When God gave commandments to his people, this is Exodus 20, 1 through 5. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. God makes it clear to them. God made it clear to them. I am the one who rescued you. I took you from the place of slavery the horrible place of forced labor and oppression. I redeemed you and brought you out from slavery to freedom. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the first thing I will tell you is do not have other gods. I rescued you from the stupid puny gods. They do not deserve your worship or your glory or your prayers. They do not deserve your devotion or your homage. They do not deserve your gifts or sacrifices or relationships, not your families, not your kids. God is rightly jealous, like a husband for his wife. Of course he is jealous. Of course he longs for the relationship that should be his and his alone. The devotion and attention and love from a spouse should go only one way. And if it is spread around to others, jealousy ought to burn. The psalmist has all of this in the back of his mind. As he sings his prayer to God, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Why is the Lord angry? Because Israel has thrown themselves to other gods, given themselves in worship and devotion. There is heavy language in this book that talks about the posture and the passion with which they threw themselves to people other than God. And all of this was known up front. If you read the beginning of your Bible, the front portion is called the Torah, the first five books, and it is the story of God making a people for himself. And at the very end of the fifth book, Deuteronomy, Yahweh, the creator God, the redeeming God, the covenant-making God, lays it all out. They are about to walk into his inheritance the land of Israel, the land of promise, Canaan, where Jerusalem will one day be built up where the temple will one day be, but this is before all of that. As a nation, a unique nation in all of history, as they have a covenant made with them, no other nation has had that since. And he says, I will be your God, you will be my people, follow me, worship me. And if you do, you'll be protected. And your plants will grow and your animals will have many offspring and your descendants will be great and your enemies will be defeated before you and you will be prosperous. 
the rescuing God makes a covenant with them and says, I want you to live in this world as you ought to live. It's good for you. Walk this way with me and all will go well if you do not go after other gods to serve them. But if you do go after other gods, where there was blessing, there will be curses. You can read all of this in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, but here is a taste of the curses from 2847. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a, put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish." This sounds frighteningly like the Babylonians on the horizon. The psalmist has all of this in the back of his mind. He knows these words. These are the words that they wrote on their doors and they learned as they walked. They told their children and their grandchildren. And alas, they did not listen to them. And now he sits in the blood and says, How long, O Lord? I can see clearly we went after other gods. We gave ourselves to them completely and the results are here all around me. He is in the midst of the consequences of his sin and he is asking, when does this stop? I see it. I see the cause. I see the result. It is all clear to me, but, but when does it stop? When do you deal with the hard-faced nation that came against us, the evil nation, the Babylonians? Just because God used the destructive power of one nation does not mean they are a righteous group of people. And the psalmist sees that. They have eaten us up, he says. They laid us to waste, and they don't call on you. They don't know Yahweh. They do not give glory to their creator. They do not give proper worship to you. Stop them. You are a jealous God. All the questions, all the uncertainty thrown almost haphazardly or ferociously to the God who listens. This is the proper posture, friends. These knowing questions lead to a cadence around his knowledge of their sin in 8 and 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Couched here is the understanding that he and his people have sinned. 
And if this people is responded to only in regards to their iniquities, only in regards to their sin, only in regards to their worship of other gods, then they will be wiped out completely. And the psalmist knows this. The singer knows the extent, the magnitude, the vileness of his sins. And there is a right trepidation because of it. If you have a proper view of your sin, if you see it in all its depths, then run to God and say, do not remember against us our former iniquities. They know they have been crooked in heart, crooked in motive, crooked in action, crooked in relationship. Do you have a healthy view of sin, of your sin? Does it have you running to God Or do you think it is manageable? The psalmist does not lie to himself. He doesn't want God to remember against them their sins. But he knows he prays to a God whose character includes grace and compassion. So again, these are the words of prayer that have you running back to the God who can do something about your low situation. And there is request for compassion. He says, let your compassion come speedily to meet us. Be gracious to us, not because we deserve your kindness, but because it is in your very nature. It is in your character. And as we have seen this morning, it is in your very name. Help us. O God of our salvation, save us not just from the tragedy and the war and the death around us, but save us from our sins. Save us from ourselves. We are a sinful people with evil hearts who have gone after other gods and we are brought low. And if you expend your character on us, your compassion on us, the glory of your name will be known. I love the theology of this song. Salvation is not just for me. My being saved does not terminate on me. It proclaims the name of the Lord far beyond me. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. You have revealed your justice. Now reveal your compassion. Make your name great among us to the people around us. Save me from my sins. Deliver me in order that others may know who you are. Friends, take hold of this prayer. When you recognize your own iniquities, your sin, your failings, do not wallow in isolation until you feel you have cleaned yourself up and can be presentable again. You are not presentable. On your own, you are a crooked soul. And if you are responded to only in connection to your sin, you are doomed. Instead, run to this God whose name is grace grace and compassion, mercy and love. And say, God, don't remember against me my sin. Deliver me, save me for your name's sake. Show me your character and your graciousness. He will answer that prayer. When you recognize your sin, pray this way. Sing this way. 
the psalmist keeps singing in the midst and moves from the people's sin and he goes straight to appeal. He's going to appeal to God's character and for God's character to be revealed. In 10 through 12, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of your neighbors the taunt with which they have taunted you, O Lord. As before, the theology continues. This is all an appeal that God's character would be revealed. The psalmist says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Can't you see the mocking? The Babylonians are evil people. That's recognized here. That's recognized in other ancient literature. Horrible people. They would, and they would set up their king as a god. And they waltzed through Israel and took the temple to the supposed creator God. You can see the words. Can't you hear the mocking? Where is their God? Who is their God? They say their God rescued them from Egypt. They couldn't rescue from the Babylonians. Our king beat your God. Yahweh didn't protect you. He didn't stop us. We went all the way to the steps of the temple, killing as we went. And the psalmist sings, God, for your namesake, avenge the outpoured blood of your servant. Punish their evil. This is raw prayer, friends. This is the outpouring of anguish and hurt right to the listening ears of God. These are real appeals. These are not just sales tactics. These are not ways to butter up the Lord as if one could appeal to his vanity. This is a firm desire to not have other nations saying lies about Yahweh, saying lies about the Creator God. You should appeal to God to vindicate Himself when you hear people mock Him and taunt Him. And let it be known, Babylon is not a righteous tool. I'll say it again. They are a crooked stick God used to draw a straight line. Being the tool of judgment of a sinful nation does not make you a righteous nation. And this psalmist knows this and can see the need for justice in the case of the Babylonians. Will justice on them too, God. Make right their wrongs that they have committed. They have engaged in atrocities and your righteousness must call for an end. Let all the world know that this type of killing and destruction will not stand unpunished. He says, hear the words of the prisoners. Hear the groans of the prisoners. Rescue us and put it back in the laps of the Babylonians. How many times have you prayed this way? God, stop their mouths. Throw it back in their laps. God, rescue the prisoners, the ones doomed to die. This is the God who can do something. This is the God who hears and is effective in his action. Pray this way, friends. The psalmist does not just go to find another nation to ally with for protection. If you read scripture, you know that some people tried that. 
they failed. The psalmist goes to the one who can do something and whose name is on the line. He prays for preservation and rescue. He prays for just judgment. He prays for a listening ear, and he prays to the listening ear. He echoes the story of Exodus. If you remember Exodus, it says they groaned in Egypt, and God heard them and rescued them. And now the psalmist says the the prisoners groaned. God, hear them again. He comes in with raw, unfiltered prayer. He acknowledges the tragedy around him. He asks the hard questions. He confesses sin and asks for salvation and appeals for the name of God to look good through action informed by his character. And finally, unexpectedly, he ends with praise. In verse 13, But we, your people, The sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Literally, the last word in this song is the word praise. That is unexpected, right? I heard this prayer start with anger and despair, questioning, uncertainty, moving to appeal for God's glory, and now we are over here, it ends with praise on the lips of the singer. They sing, we are your people. You have promised to be a shepherd. We are your sheep. And now we give you worship. We give you thanks. You are good and gracious. And the entirety of this psalm assumes the name that God has revealed for himself that we read at the beginning. Even the longevity from generation to generation echoes the length at which God exerts his character showing kindness or judging iniquity. With an understanding of the name and character of God, this is the proper place to land. This is not a put-on. This is not faking it. This is a proper response to God. This is not a bartering praise for rescue. These are the words of a choir who have been shaken back into an understanding of who God is and what he has done. They sing, we, your people, of course you are jealous. We are your people and you are our God and you are not a distant God, but one that treats us with the care of a shepherd. And we will give thanks to you. And your glory and honor and character can be thanked forever because that is how good your character is. It will not diminish with time. And they sing from generation to generation. We need to give our children this story and our grandchildren this story. We will continue this song. I have noticed for myself, if my reflex is prayer, and I'm not saying it always is, But if my reflex is prayer, if I experience tragedy or anger or frustration and I start with prayer, talking to God who will listen, I can find myself coming to a place where I am praising God. It may be with tears, it may be with a heavy heart, but it is the necessary reaction when I think of the character of God. And this psalm does this, pray this way when tragedy is all around, when questions are burning in your mind, when your own sin is crouching at the door, pray this way and run to the character of God. 
I long for you all to have this type of response to something so devastating. That you would conclude by saying, we must tell the children, we must tell the grandchildren of this congregation the stories of the Lord and His character so they will praise Him. These are not five easy steps to get you to praise. But I do believe if you talk to the Lord with this type of candor and severity, the God who will listen to you is the God who will change you. And to pray and sing through this type of progression will move you toward a posture that can praise. And they sang this song, and they walked through this progression, and the remnant that was left, praying these melodies, came to that place as well. Some of that remnant were taken all the way to Babylon. You know the story of Daniel and his friends. And suffering and difficulty continued, but the words on the remnant's lips continued to be praise and continued to be reminded that they have a shepherd. This psalm reminds us that the station of Israel was a serious one. They had a special covenant with God, which they had disregarded, and now were watching the dire ramifications and consequences as a foreign people took them out. They are appealing and praying to God to shepherd them. And with full anticipation of that shepherding, they plan to praise. Friends, the gospel, the good news of this book is that we, a bunch of people belonging to foreign nations that have gone after other gods, nations that had no covenant with God, we have been welcomed in as sheep by the great shepherd. God broke into our situation, revealing his character. He even uses this language. What did Jesus call himself? He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord gave himself for our iniquities in order that he should be a shepherd to us. Jesus put his own blood on the ground to atone for our sin. He was mocked and derided in order to give us his inheritance. Jesus left his own body in need of burial so that we can have our sins dealt with. He remembered our sins of the past all the way to the cross so that he could show compassion to us. Friends, that is why we can ask for deliverance in the words of this prayer. God has dealt all the just blows on himself in order to save you. God has made his name great and known to many nations by forgiving sinners like you. One of Jesus' disciples wrote a letter and described it this way. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God continues to make himself look good through forgiving our sins and shepherding us. He desires to hear you and will listen to this type of prayer that we have rehearsed today. When you come upon tragedy or despair or death or suffering or recognize your own sin, let your reflex be to pray with these types of raw prayers to the God who still works at making his name look great. Let's pray. Lord, this psalm is full of heavy 
language and stark reality. And if in the darkest of times the family of Asaph can pray this way, I know it is applicable for the suffering we will face today or in the future. Holy Spirit, bring this to mind the next time we experience life that makes us weep and fills us with anger and vengeance. May our reflex not be to merely talk to someone about it, but run to you with all our intensity. And Lord, respond for the sake of your name. And Holy Spirit, give us a clear, appalling view of our sin. And may it drive our feet to run to Jesus, who bled for our sin. Allow my friends to see the grace and compassionate of the jealous God who died for them. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.